and welcome to Lunching with Lawyers. Lunching with Lawyers is brought to you by LorettaCrete.com. In this series of podcasts, Loretta explores the world of law graduates. She talks to lawyers, recent law graduates and budding lawyers seeking alternatives or exploring how to get the jobs that they want. This podcast series is also for those thinking about pivoting or just wanting to do something different. So join Loretta for discussions with lawyers and law graduates about their careers and the paths they took to get to where they are. Let's explore what success in their profession looks like to them. Simon grew up in Toowoomba before studying literature and law at the University of Queensland in Brisbane. His first job was in Sydney at the Redfern Legal Centre working for disadvantaged and vulnerable clients with financial problems. He then worked for Legal Aid, then as Australian Deputy Telecommunications Ombudsman and now as a Brisbane barrister primarily practising in commercial litigation. Simon was a founding member of LawRide and has served on numerous boards and committees of organisations in the legal and community sector over the years. He's currently a member of the Law Council of Australia's Consumer Law Committee. Gee, that's a mouthful. In his spare time, Simon writes novels. His three published novels are The War Artist, Closer to Stone and The Comfort of Figs. Hello, Simon. Hello, Loretta. I've known Simon Cleary for many years, but that made me all the more hesitant about interviewing him on my own. He's a barrister, so used to avoiding questions that he does not want to answer. <laughs> so I wanted some serious help, help, and who better than his greatest supporter? No, not his mother, mother but his wife, Elisa. Thanks, Elisa, for your help. Oh, pleasure. Welcome well, to you both. Lovely to be here, <laughs> So, Simon, you were born and raised in Toowoomba, the child of a long-term Toowoomba resident. What was it like growing up and having to live up to the family name? It was a great place to grow up. I loved it. Uh, it was a, a regional town and uh, there were a couple of generations of Clearies in that regional town. And not just that, but uh, my father and my grandfather were both lawyers in that regional town. Uh, so I did spend evenings as a kid uh, after school going to my father and my grandfather's legal practice and exploring cupboards and crawling around amongst dusty legal files and all of that was um, exciting for a while until I started to see just how long the hours my father used to work and I've got to say that was all a bit daunting and uh, uh, it made me decide for many years that I wasn't, wasn't going to touch a wall with a barge pole. <laughs> That's rather surprising because the question that I was gonna, going to ask, given that your father had practised for over 50 years, wasn't it? He was the second longest serving practising solicitor in Queensland when he retired. Wow. Mm. And, uh, well, uh, the question that I was going to ask was what made, how did you feel about following in his footsteps? <clears throat> Quite honestly, Dad worked long hours as a conveyancing solicitor and uh, with an estates practice. 
I didn't find that practice particularly thrilling. So when I thought about the careers or the study that I might do after school, law actually wasn't the number one thing. In fact, I put down medicine, got accepted into medicine and uh, decided a couple of weeks in that no, 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 that was a mistake. And that actually it was the law with literature that I wanted to do. And that was, for me, that was about a love of words, an interest in justice and no doubt seeing the way that my father was able to use his life and legal practice to contribute to a community uh, and that was his Toowoomba community. And, and uh, but you not only majored in English literature you also majored in government what made you choose government or was that well, that was, look, that was mm. about justice as well. Yeah. It was about systemic justice. It was about how how do politics, how does politics <coughs> work? How are laws formed? And what's the relationship between law and politics? And that's about what sort of a community we want to live in. And so that was that really was an interest to. What he's not telling you, Loretta, is that I also chose to do government. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and had he already met you by this stage, yes, Lisa? Yes, because I also was born and raised uh, not far from Toowoomba on the Darling Downs. Mm-hmm. And so, in fact, Simon and I uh, were at school together in our senior schooling years. So we knew each other as friends before university. And, of course, you know, uh, Simon was naturally going to choose government to... Um, because I, because I was there, I would have to say. <laughs> Is that right, Simon? I can't remember sitting in a single uh, a lecture. Oh. Is that because Elisa wasn't at the lectures and just taking your notes? Or was it the other way around? <laughs> they were very big lectures. Remember government, what was the course? The big um, one, 101 or something GT like that. G101. It was huge. students at the University of Queensland at Brisbane. Mm. Why did you you both go to the University of Queensland? Why why did you pick that university? Well, for me, it was a university close to Toowoomba Mm. and there wasn't a university in Toowoomba at the time. Uh, It was really a natural journey for a lot of Toowoomba school students to come to Brisbane to uni and uh, UQ had a good law school and it had a good arts program. So that, that was ultimately the university I chose. My friends going there as well, and that was all part of going to somewhere with, uh, with school mm. friends too. I think, oh, didn't your father go there and your grandfather too? Well, my father certainly did. He did his law at the University mm. of Queensland as well. So there was <coughs> possibly a, a momentum to, to go mm. to that particular university anyway. Given, given though your you know relatively background of privilege, why were you so interested in social justice? Like what, what caused you to be that way? Well, I think that was, that was part of the background too. Mm. Uh, my my father was someone who was keenly interested in um, a fair and just society and community. He worked in all sorts of non-government and voluntary organisations which contributed to the community. He was an extraordinary giver of his time in a pro bono sense mm. uh, for, uh, for community causes. 
he was of a generation of lawyers who would act for clients who couldn't necessarily pay their bills with money, but who would offer pigs and you know, <laughs> fruit and vegetables in payment. So that was part of his, his community practice, his regional town practice. So all of those things were very, very important. The school that I went to as well uh, was a school that was um, a co-ed school and a boarding school and it uh, it was a, a, a Catholic school, a Catholic denomination mm. and that particular school also had a keen sense of social justice and I think some of the values that were um, running through that particular school no doubt helped shape an interest in those things. Um, you know, and what was the most interesting thing that you can you recall that your father might have got in payment for his legal services? I reckon a pig. <laughs> I mean, a pig was it? I must say, a bag of carrots. <laughs> you a bag of carrots one evening as well. So you were eating carrots for a few weeks. <laughs> yeah, in some of those, in some, you know, um, regional towns, there is an economy where there is a trading of goods and services, and so those sorts of things used to happen. Oh, that's uh, <laughs> a pig was it's, uh, well. It's, it reminds me of once when I was uh, working as a community centre lawyer, and we got a fish. <laughs> that's the most interesting food item <laughs> I received as a thank you gift as working as a lawyer. Um, so, did you when you graduated from the uh, from the law school at the University of Queensland? Did you go straight and do a graduate legal program or did you do appeal? Um, or how did you then start to practice? So I did a dual degree. Mm. I did an arts degree and a law degree. And after my arts degree, I spent a year travelling and then came back to complete the second two years of law full time. And having done that, I actually enrolled in a Masters of Agricultural Economics uh, at Sydney University and uh, that was due to start uh, the halfway through the next year and so I had another six months to travel and uh, part of my travel took me to West Africa where I had an interest in visiting some aid programs as part of a you know, mm. general plan to do this Masters of Agricultural Economics which was directed towards solving world poverty and part of the time that I spent in West Africa just led me to think that no, 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 I really needed to understand a little bit about poverty in Australia before, mm. um, before trying to solve world poverty. So I came back to Sydney and did a practical legal education mm. uh, training there at UTS and it was after that that I looked for work in the community sector and found my first job in the law at Redfern Legal Centre. Yeah, and well, I was going to ask, how did that happen, really? You know, how you became a social justice lawyer. Was it really because you realised that you couldn't solve world poverty, so you thought you'd do the law instead? Yeah, it was. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, I, actually, I did find myself in West Africa mm. um, visiting an aid program, mm. thinking it was presumptuous of me to uh, step into that area without understanding a little bit more about uh, the causes of poverty in mm -hmm. Australia. And Sydney and working in the community sector and in particular working at Redfern 
was something that I wanted to do to try to understand something of those dynamics. Had you volunteered at Redfern before you went and worked there? Yeah, so I volunteered at a community legal centre in Brisbane, Caxton mm. Legal Centre, mm. while I was doing my law degree in Brisbane. And then when I landed in Sydney and while I was doing my PLT course, I worked in pubs and various things and also volunteered at Redfern Legal mm. Centre. And it was having volunteered there for quite a few months really that some part-time paid work came up and uh, after that a full-time position actually Redfern was a wonderful place to work it was a, a really sought after place mm. to work for a lot of lawyers in inner city city or in the CBD uh, as a place to come after after the day's legal practice to volunteer in, in an advice program so there's a terrific milieu of lawyers um, hanging around the legal centre at that time. And I also remember you telling me about some of the um, very high profile legal people that you encountered working there too in forums and things like that. Well there's some incredibly talented committed lawyers Mm. who worked at Redfern Legal Centre. There have been some terrific lawyers who passed through Mm. there. Uh, One of the uh, high court, current high court judges in Australia is an alumni of Redfern Legal Centre, Court of Appeal judge in, in Sydney. So there are some really uh, smart and committed mm. people who have passed through that particular legal centre. So it was it was really wonderful uh, spending mm. time working at Redfern. I had four years there, and it was a, a marvellous first yeah. four years of legal practice. So who's who's the current High Court judge that was there? So Virginia Bell has mm. an association with Redfern Legal Centre um, in her younger days as a lawyer. Was was it around your time or? No, she was before my time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, oh, well, that's you know I was going to ask what was it like working there. It must have been very dynamic and. Well, mm, John John Baston was uh, mm. who's now in the Court of Appeal in New South Wales was a barrister who provided enormous assistance a lot of it on a pro bono basis to Redfern Legal Centre. So he's an example of the sort of person who was there at about that time. Can you remember any interesting cases that you might have encountered? There are different categories. There are so many fascinating clients. Mm. Uh, clients who came from all sorts of different backgrounds. Um, some who were refugees, uh, others who uh, had you know, lived in and about inner city Sydney and were characters. Uh, there were cases which tested the law about consumer credit legal issues and that was the area of practice that I really landed in. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not what I had gone to Redfern Legal Centre to work in but that just happened to be the area of work that I was doing and the sorts of people I was representing doing that work were people who often had been oversold, very expensive uh, fringe credit uh, loans and what have you. And there were all sorts of uh, cases which were testing the circumstances in which contracts could be reopened because they were unjust. And it was also a time when lending practices were becoming more and more computerised and uh, in cases where the 
programs, the IT programs of the credit providers uh, were in error, there could be portfolio-wide errors in which consumers, for example, across an entire portfolio may have been overcharged. And there were numerous cases of that sort which were being tested at the time and Redfern Legal Centre with the Consumer Credit Legal Centre in Sydney were involved in running some of those cases. And I was going to ask you about that, because what was it like then? Because you would have been a very junior lawyer in some ways, doing quite innovative and, you know, cutting-edge law at the time. Well, can I tell you a story about just how junior I was? <laughs> yes. in, in, in one particular conference, uh, in my first year at Redfern, I co-delivered a paper at a conference, and I had to speak um, after... Um, Michael Kirby. That's right. That's just what I was thinking of before. Because that stayed with you, that story. It has stayed with yeah. me because I was a first-year solicitor. I was young and callow and inexperienced. Uh, and I was telling a little story at this conference about a few things that uh, Redfern Legal Centre and I had learnt in the course of acting for a handful of clients who had a similar issue. And, uh, and so that was the subject of the paper. Um, but before I spoke, um, Michael Kirby spoke, and he spoke eloquently. He spoke about matters of extraordinary complexity, substance and depth. He laid out his speech without notes in the clearest possible way. And I'm just sitting there looking and listening to him and my knees were actually shaking underneath the table. I was just so um, uh, overawed by what I knew I couldn't begin to live up to. And indeed, I was fearful of being um, shown for being a fraud. <laughs> but he was really nice to you, He was incredibly generous. Mm. In fact, he had to leave a little early and uh, he was generous and courteous enough to lean across the table and to ask my permission uh, uh, for whether um, uh, he could leave uh, without <laughs> listening to me give my presentation. Uh, it, was the, it was the most uh, lovely and courteous thing that he could have done. Mm, that's wonderful. But isn't it funny? We all have imposter syndrome, don't we? We, we sure do. Mm. That's very true. You know, and I don't, don't know if it gets better as we age, really. You know, I... Mm. still sometimes think, what am I doing here? Why, you know... I'm going to be found out. I'm going to be found out. Mm. But, Mm. you know, in that particular case, you could very well have been found out had he sticked around, had he stuck around for the rest of the presentation. (laughs) (laughs) So I was going to ask you, do you have any advice for, you know, young lawyers or somebody wanting to, not necessarily a young lawyer, but anyone wanting to pursue a career as a social justice lawyer about how the way to go about doing that there are probably two parts to it one is to um, to find a way uh, you know that is to go out and just find an opportunity to use the law in that way and so that's that's really about setting yourself Mm. in a particular direction in terms of the logistics of it there there are a number of community legal centres around Australia, mm. but there aren't too many, and 
It was the case when I was working in the community legal sector, and I understand still the case now, that they're highly sought after positions, mm. uh, that, they, that there's real competition to work in, in some of those community legal centres. And so uh, the path for me was to volunteer uh, until mm. an opportunity arose to work there on a full-time basis. That volunteering was just a way of naturally gaining experience, but also about understanding something of the ethos of the community legal centres, because while the community legal centre sector has a similar ethos, different community legal centres can operate with slightly different visions for what they want to achieve in their particular community and with their particular area of expertise, and so. I found it a good thing to volunteer and associate myself and to hang around uh, at the community legal centre to learn something about, really about what it was about. And that was good for me too, and, um, in allowing me to be pretty clear that I did want to work mm. there and spend energies at that, at that place. I must say, you know, the, particularly the Credit Legal Centres and Redfern Legal Centre was renowned for actually doing quite complex casework. I don't know if it's changed a little bit now in terms of what community legal centres can tackle, um, but also I think it was quite unusual. I think it was a bit unusual as to the complexity of the cases that you would have run. As because you were running similar cases, weren't you? At the yeah. Consumer Credit Legal Service in Western Australia yes. at the same time. Mm. Okay. So it was, mm. you know, it. They were really challenging. In fact, I think at one stage I didn't want to be a lawyer anymore because the, mm. the amount of stress that was placed on you as a young junior lawyer, you know, if you're intervening yeah. in Supreme Court proceedings and, mm. you know, having to run your own hearings and whatever when you're barely out of law school, mm. it was, I think it was quite challenging, but it was exciting too, you know, mm. made that so exciting. Yeah, I was going to say, well, my observations of it as a non-lawyer mm. person and seeing the dynamic of that workplace so briefly at the time because we were we weren't together we might have been I think uh, you, you certainly came down and visited me at yeah. the old town hall in Redfern that's right and they were uh, as I imagine they still are today a very dynamic uh, bunch of co-workers with all sorts of political um, interests and intrigue and um, lots of excitement in terms of that as well. Mm. So their legal minds and their political minds were an exciting... And, artist, and artistic and creative mm. minds. Yeah. Mm. Uh, lots of those community legal centres are actually mm. centred in vibrant communities, physical mm. communities mm. as well, and that brings a life to those places. So your life beyond work too was exciting because you were connected there. Mm. Yes, that's right. Mm. I was living at the time in inner city Sydney and living as part of the geographical community too. Because mm. that was quite a poor area at the time, wasn't it? You it know? was, it was. They're, they're, mm. um, it's a, uh, an area which is marked by uh, significant high-density public housing, mm. uh, various migrant groups uh, who'd come to Sydney, and the, the block in Everly Street was uh, an Indigenous Indigenous homeland of sorts mm. as well. So there was a lot taking place culturally in Redfern and the surrounding suburbs. And it's a very long way from Toowoomba, Loretta. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so 
I came from the country too. <laughs> yeah, so I want to know, how did you two meet? Like, obviously you went to school together, but it looks like you weren't seeing each other at the time when you were down in Redfern. So I'm just trying to think. We, we had been seeing each other a little bit before then, mm. and then... Uh, there was a period of time. Yeah, well, when you were at Redfern, we did get together then. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Perhaps towards the end of my time. That's right. And Is then it was after that that Simon moved up to Brisbane and that's when he got involved with legal aid up here. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Is it um, because you then, like I was going to say, you then moved to legal aid when they established the Consumer Protection Unit in the mid-1990s. I remember that vividly, given I applied for the same job and was outclassed <laughs> by you. So, so what, did you come back for Lisa? Did you come back for the Consumer Protection oh, Unit? Wait, I know why. Oh, bloody hell, you should, you <laughs> you should have just... I would have got that job otherwise. <laughs> personally which were pushing me and pulling me back to mm. to Queensland and this opportunity to set up the consumer protection unit legal aid was a fantastic opportunity mm. so it was a, a great thing that legal aid Queensland was doing and it was a real addition to legal service in Queensland at the time because one of the interesting things about the consumer protection unit and given that I now work in that unit and have worked in there for very many years but one of the things that I am quite interested in is was how challenging it was it for you to establish that sort of a unit where no one else was practicing in that area in legal aid and where there were no external grants of aid. That must have been quite difficult. There were challenges around it. The starting place was creating some networks or tapping into the networks that already existed and the first and the most important network was with the financial counselling organisations around not just Brisbane but around Queensland as a whole and the financial and that's a sophisticated long-standing network of people working in the in the in a similar area and those networks were useful in terms of building referral pathways mm. both so that the financial counselling sector could keep an eye out for cases consumer law cases which would likely if they were run by the consumer protection unit have a broader impact uh, on, on on lending practices and on mm. the community and so those relationships were incredibly helpful, I think, and they were also mutual in that very, very often clients would come to the Consumer Protection Unit who didn't simply have legal problems. In fact, some of them didn't have legal problems. They were really financial counselling type problems. Mm. And so having access, ready access to really talented, um, great people who are financial counsellors is really, really important. Mm. And I think that's why that unit developed differently to say some of the other legal aid commissions because, and and I must say, I've stolen, I've tried to steal credit for your relationship with financial counsellors because I said, <laughs> no, it was all up to me. <laughs> when I came along and how we developed a different yes. way of working with financial yes. counsellors, that's very different to how all of the other legal aid commissions work um, in relation to financial counsellors. And I think it's because 
the unit was so small and you really did need to build those links and have those people really doing a lot of the grunt work in some ways in providing assistance to consumers. Because the unit couldn't act for everyone no. in the consumer law problem. The unit really needed to identify cases which were likely to have a systemic impact. And so having those relationships mm. was incredibly important. There were some uh, private solicitors uh, and Caxton Legal Centre as well, mm. people working in the area, and they were very, very important and supportive relationships too. Mm. Oh, yeah, they, they still are, really. Uh, I was... Look, I've lost... I've completely lost my train I've of got, thought, so at least I'm just trying to reflect on um, those days when you were working at Legal Aid, and I remember some very fine Christmas parties. Again, like Redfern Legal Centre, you encountered a wonderful uh, tribe of co-workers there. It was, it, it was a place that attracted lawyers who wanted to be there. Yes. Uh, because Legal Aid jobs didn't at the time, things may have changed mm-hmm. or that, didn't at the time pay as well as the private sector, and there were people who were at least in terms of remuneration, sacrificing things in order to work at legal aid for an organisation that was acting for people who couldn't afford private representation. And so it meant that there were people who wanted to be there, who wanted to be Mm. doing the work, and who were doing that work for reasons other than primarily uh, remunerative reasons. And they were terrific people, many of whom are still friends. It was a wonderful, wonderful work. And I I think that's still the way it is really nowadays. And in fact, I think it's extremely competitive to get a position, simply because the opportunities to do that social justice sort of work are so limited. Mm. And Mm. certainly you have the resourcing to be able to go and do that as Mm. well. And yeah, it's, um, it's really... Yeah, a great. Oh, it's a great place to work for. So, one a, a very good friend of ours actually. It's lovely to see has a young son who would be third year law, and he mm. is vol. Uh, he's not volunteering. He's actually doing some paid work at Legal Aid, mm. and loving it. Really yeah. enjoying the encounters with the um, the people who work there, and getting great experience. Well, in fact, um, the call centre at Legal Aid is. Um, renowned for having very good training in terms of giving information mm. to consumers and we mm. often used to joke or my colleague and I Catherine who was interviewing um, a couple of weeks ago she um, we used to joke that the people in the call center knew more knew more about time limits in relation to cooling off periods <laughs> than any other lawyer mm. because right. of their training in there and so yeah. I think it's a really good grounding for mm. young lawyers mm. because or, you know, uh, law students, yeah. Mm-hmm. And in fact, one of the things is that a lot of people are, you know, a lot of, there are a lot of law students in the, yes. in the um, call centre, and I think it's a great thing mm-hmm. to be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did want to know, can you recall anything that was, you know, some highlights about some of the consumer credit stuff? Because that was a dynamic time again, in terms of the development of the law and some of the more colourful lenders that you might have come across. I remember a lender by the name of Shark Financial I was going Services. to say, the bikey <laughs> guys Financial on the Gold Coast. Shark Financial Services, that's right. Was, uh, uh, you know, run by a, a fellow, whose uh, name I won't mention, but uh, who ran a, a, a lending operation that uh, quite boldly 
uh, saw itself as uh, a loan sharking operation, and hence the name. Uh, and it was a, a high interest lending uh, mm. operation, and uh, it was that was an interesting case, a series of cases really against uh, that particular lender, uh, which also ultimately led to regulatory intervention by the Office of Fair Trading, mm. which was another relationship, another important relationship mm. at the time that the Consumer Protection Union was set up, and no doubt um, still is. Mm because often systemic issues could only be taken so far in an individual case and it's a regulator that needs to come in and take action and so that series of cases that the Consumer Protection Unit ran then spilled over into regulatory action by the Office of Fair Trading. So that was a memorable, a memorable couple of years of litigation. Really. He was very colourful because he also, didn't he have a Ferrari or something with personalised um, plates that said something like shark or I can't I can't recall it was um, quite quite interesting that time and I think he may have even um, gone on to play a cameo role in a film set at the Gold Coast <laughs> he did <laughs> he yeah, did yeah <laughs> so oh well, that's um, quite funny but the 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 really interesting thing that came out of that case was the interest rates, I think, at the time were about 240%. Mm. But after that, there were so many lenders that started to charge. We were so outraged, as I recall, in the in the um, community sector about somebody charging 240%. And then they just blossomed everywhere. Mm. It was it was terrible. And they all came out mm. of the Gold Coast. They came mm. out of the Gold Coast. The Gold mm. Coast is a fertile place <laughs> for all sorts of... Uh, scams and high interest lending practices <laughs> it's as if they were a, a testing ground and you know, often those models were rolled out around the country mm. after being tested at the Gold Coast and, and it was you know, correct me if, if my memory of the chronology is not quite right but it was after that that some of the legislative uh, action towards having interest rate caps and in particular a 48% cap uh, really started to gain some steam yeah, it did. Um, I don't. I can't remember when exactly the interest rate cap came in in Queensland, but I thought it was two thousand. It was after that sure. time. It, it definitely was after that time, and um, yeah. So, but you know, it wasn't quite as effective as we wanted it. Now, thank goodness, Simon finally decided to get out of that job because yeah, made way for beautiful it you. made way for me to have that, his position. <laughs> And you have <laughs> taken it to stratospheric levels. That's right. Yeah. And I've never left. <laughs> so I know that you spent some time then at Legal Aid, but then you went off and became the Deputy Ombudsman at the Telecommunications Ombudsman in Melbourne, and you moved your family down there. How was that for you, Elisa? Well, that was, that was quite a moment in our family's life because... We left town with our elder son, Dominic, who was, he wasn't quite two, but that'd be right. And Liam was only a few months old. And so it was a, a, a very big challenge because Simon, of course, had us in tow and he wasn't getting a lot of sleep and I wasn't getting a lot of sleep. So for any budding lawyers out there, if they choose to um, have a family and work hard as a lawyer expect that 
it can get quite challenging with little ones who mm. you don't sleep so well. And that happened for us for a little while in Melbourne. You can't do anything about having little ones that don't sleep. No. So um, even though that did feature for some time, once we found our feet in, in Melbourne, it was, again, a really interesting place to live and to work and through Simon's work particularly at that mm. point because I was at home with the boys we encountered another beautiful workplace and that certainly made our move to to Melbourne and getting established there that much easier because the TIO also had some incredibly mm. terrific people it sure did. Mm. It sure did. didn't it and it was a mini justice system like yeah. so many of the ombudsman's organizations that were established in Australia in the from the early 1990s and onwards mm. and they as you know the red have been associated with similar schemes for many years mm. they received complaints tens or hundreds of thousands of complaints as the case in the telecommunications ombudsman's office was that they would investigate the complaints and ultimately try and reach resolutions which are fair and just resolutions and if not would move on to arbitrate disputes mm. and so they were mini justice systems and operating in a mini justice system like that was, in a sense, it was a natural progression uh, mm. from the sort of work that I've been doing at Legal Aid, and it was it was remarkable really to be involved at that level with that sort of system, which was seeking to deliver fair outcomes to users of telecommunication services around the country. And I suppose that's why you took the job. Because yeah, it, it was it, exactly it was. A wonderful opportunity mm. to do that and again it was an organization that had a wonderful culture it was filled with people who saw themselves as doing something important the times in telecommunications were for some of the service providers um, a bit cowboy-like so the industry was shifting pretty rapidly there were all sorts of products which were being offered on the marketplace, some of which were poor value products. The many service providers were spending vast sums on promotions mm. and very little on back-end support, uh, and in particular on back-end complaints resolution. And that meant that an organisation, all the consumers needed somewhere to go mm. when they had been sold a dud product but couldn't get a fair resolution uh, to their complaint. And the TIO ended up receiving hundreds of thousands of complaints every year. So that was, that was mm. a good time to be there. But the organisation was filled with people who wanted to be there and who felt that they were providing a really important social or community service as they were. I remember some of those things. That I, don't, I don't necessarily think that the telecommunications industry is much better now. Um, I think there's a perennial problem about the sale of products that are not appropriate to consumers and whether they're doing such a good job in dealing with complaints is... You know, it's always challenging, I think, and it's always challenging working as a lawyer in that field because... You sort of sometimes think you're going two steps forward, one step back. I do remember, though, the mobile phone premium services mm. and matters where people were ringing up 1-800 numbers for psychic lines. <laughs> and I do, remember, mm. um, I do remember the circumstances of one matter where the person had on the psychic line uh, 
was told that they were going to lose um, a lot of money and then had to sell their house to pay for their psychic calls. So right. it was really, it, they were, that we're not talking about, you know, a couple of thousand dollars. Mm. We were talking about tens of thousands. Thousand. I remember one, one case, yeah. nearly a quarter of a million dollars of wow. debts were incurred really? uh, for one of those premium mm. service, mm. Uh, services. Yeah, and so, you know, it and it was the psychic lines more than, you know, the, mm. um, a lot of people often thought it would be the sex lines or something yes. like that. But it was in fact, the, and they were extremely vulnerable consumers. Being outrageously exploited. Mm. And, you know, the industry really didn't think that they were doing anything wrong or that they had any responsibility to ensure that these people could afford these products. Wow. It was so outrageous at the time. Mm. Um, and, yeah, it's, yeah. So I, then you you moved from that. So then there was a, one stage where you were actually, tra- you, because you moved back, Lisa, to Brisbane. Yeah, we, we lived down there for nearly four years, wasn't mm-hmm. it? And it was during that time where we had children growing up. Um, our, our child went to school. So, you know, we were juggling quite a lot. Simon's job was hectic. Mm. Um, and he also had responsibilities um, as a father and a husband. And this is the reality. <laughs> this is the reality for young lawyers. There's no two ways about it. It's If you want to be a hands-on parent, yeah. um, it's busy, you know, mm. if you... Insist, you know, you want to be part of the family life and also be supportive of a partner who wants to work, and that has always been my desire as well. Mm-hmm. So, and so at that time in Sydney, in Melbourne, rather, really was a time where um, you and Lisa were moving back into the workforce after a couple of years. Yes, out, two years out. Yes, and I was looking for opportunities to find my way in education, and particularly with, like Simon, a justice lens on mm-hmm. that. So I was having some really interesting experiences uh, volunteering with the children coming with me at different times Mm. in all sorts of settings. And it was after that actually that we came back up here. I came first Mm. while you finished off in Melbourne Mm. and we had Dominic going to school and Liam not too far behind and I was establishing myself in my area of education Mm. or work, global education. So it was that was a particularly tricky transition because mm, Simon was some nine months yeah, doing yeah. A, doing a, a you know a weekly commute mm. from from Melbourne to Brisbane. So and that is the realities of you know these days with a workforce that's much more mobile where mm. where we have the convenience of flight, but it has an impact on family life. There is no two ways about that. And and it really shows that it, to be able to do that and to have a family life, you must have a very supportive partner, because otherwise you wouldn't be able to do that. No, you know. Right. So, um, you know, you were probably quite lucky to have someone like Elisa in your life, mm-hmm. and who was prepared to do that because, yeah, absolutely, you know, absolutely mm. no doubt about that. And at that time too, that's when you were writing as well. So Simon mm. actually wrote a book while we were in Melbourne. So we had mm. these little boys growing up and I was doing my thing and the TIO was definitely in the mix and then you were needing to find time to do something creative as well. Mm, that was where uh, my second novel was written uh, in Melbourne. So 
a fond memories of writing the second novel in those, in those four years. So The Comfort of Figs was written here? I thought it was written in Melbourne. Because... No, The Comfort of Figs was written here and then was uh, published just as we moved to Melbourne. Uh-huh. Uh, and then the second book was written in Melbourne and published just after we returned to Brisbane. So where do you find the time to write? Well, I, I squirrel away some time every morning, uh, which is writing time. It's very early in the morning. How uh, early is that? Earlier <laughs> than most people would like to be up. Let's put the it like that. The house is still quiet and, uh, <laughs> and everybody else is asleep and uh, mm. I'm not taking time. For so is it before five service. in the morning? It is before five <laughs> in the morning, Reza. Please, please don't ask me. Please don't ask me how much before five. Um, do you know there's all this research about how much sleep you need? <laughs> oh, he doesn't fit I, the uh, research I model. That research. No, he's an anomaly in that data. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to read that research. Uh, <laughs> Is that why you decided to go to the bar? Because it was just would give you so much more time to be able to write novels in the morning. <laughs> We soon learned that it's a very taxing world, the whole, the whole bar world, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, work, work at the bar is demanding. There's no, yeah. there's no doubt about uh, mm. when, when you are on, um, it, uh, you're on and you have to give whatever the case is that you're running uh, everything you can. That's just the nature of it. On a practical basis, how do you get to the bar? Like, you know, you have to have a law degree. Yes, <laughs> tick. Yes, uh, you, you do a bar practice course, mm. and having done the bar practice course, you're um, eligible to be admitted. To do you have bar. to pass an exam, or mm, you, do. you do? Yeah, is it very onerous? It is demanding. As mm. well. uh, so there's a, there's an exam uh, which is designed, I guess, to to challenge uh, and, mm. and and to weed. Um, there wasn't an exam when I went to the bar, so I've been practicing at the bar now for nearly nine years. And at the time, it was just the bar practice course, uh, which is a six mm. week and very very intense. Intensive six-week course, but that was before the, the bar exam was introduced. Oh, when was the bar exam introduced? A couple of years after that. Uh huh. Mm. Oh, I didn't know that. See, because I'm not looking to practice at the bar. And so, how do you get these chambers? Like, what is involved in? You know, you always hear about lawyers or you know, barristers being in chambers. What mm. does that mean? Well, a chamber group is a group of anywhere between six and mm. something like a dozen barristers who share a floor, a half floor of a building and share various communal expenses, mm. but all of whom are sole practitioners, sole traders, mm. barristers. And barristers' chambers are simply rooms, a mm. single room. Often barristers will share rooms, particularly if you're new at the bar, as a, as a reader, for example, as mm. a first-year barrister, um, second or third-year barrister, you might share a room with a, an older, more experienced barrister, and that's a way of reducing your rental expenses mm. when you first come to the bar. So that commonly happens in barristers' chambers. In terms of how 
uh, someone who wants to be a barrister finds a group of chambers. Mm. Uh, there, uh, often enough, that happens through relationships that you build up uh, over time in the law. Uh, as a solicitor, for example, you may brief a barrister to run cases for you mm. and get to know that barrister and therefore um, he or she or their chamber group. So there are those sorts of relationships. Mm. There's often movement within barristers' chambers. That is, uh, some chamber groups are very, very stable and there are the same barristers who stay in that group for many, many years. But often enough, there's movement mm. uh, from one chamber group to another chamber group or barristers commonly uh, will be appointed as magistrates or judges or move on to uh, be members of tribunals mm. or retire to do other things. And so there's movement at the bar as well and, and rooms become available in that way. All right. Mm. Thanks. Very interesting. Mm. Essentially, you've got uh, a little coterie of nerdy guys and girls who mm. hang out in a communal space and never talk to each other really it's not like that at all so they're all introverts <laughs> they like to read a lot I know that. there is a lot of collegiality as well yeah, um, yeah. at the bar yes and that's, you know, and that's about practice at the bar um, so I've got some general questions what do you think the best thing is that your law degree has given you opportunities to do different things yeah. Really, I reckon the law has been really good to me. I really do. Mm. Uh, the opportunity to work in um, a community legal centre, in the legal aid sector, in a justice system that sits slightly outside of the traditional uh, legal system, and also as a barrister at the bar. So the law degree can open up all of those sorts of opportunities. And for me, I'm I'm really pleased that I did more <laughs> rather than medicine. Yes. <laughs> but I'm it also it, it, it yeah. also can take a toll. I mean, maybe, mm. maybe not on you, but my observations watching over the years, I mean, Simon's a, a very robust individual. Mm. We know that he needs only four hours sleep a night, <laughs> maybe six if he's really pushing it. But I think that it's not for everybody, even mm. though people might do well at law school and graduate well, the actual daily practice of it, I think it can be, I've observed, it can be uh, quite demanding. Mm. And I think if people were considering a life in that world, they need to think carefully, particularly around the amount of pressure. Don't you think that it can take on people, particularly the bar, Yes, I do. The, the law is demanding, the practice of mm. law is demanding. There are timetables, time there are deadlines, uh, which are often competing deadlines, and there's little flexibility often to mm. uh, push deadlines back, and it's, it can be a demanding practice. It certainly can, and it's a practice and a profession that can take a toll on one's mental health too. And there's more and more work being done, I think, about just how uh, challenging the law can be as a profession for one's mental health and how careful we as practising lawyers do need to be mm. and how we also need to look out for each other and sometimes lawyers do that less well than other professions. 
It would have to be one of the, the only professions left, perhaps medicine, although that's changing now, uh, where there is not the same level of concern around the excessive hours of work that's involved. Mm. I mean, that's it's quite unique in that way, where the amount of hours... No, it's the number of hours, isn't it, that mm-hmm. it can take out of you in the course of a day or a week if you're on a trial and things like that. In other workplaces, just it just wouldn't happen. Mm-hmm. It's not a family-friendly environment. Hence, when you look at the ratio of males to females, it would be quite weighted towards men, wouldn't it? It is still weighted towards men. Yeah. Uh, there are more women coming to the bar mm. and there are women, more women being appointed to the judiciary, yeah. which is just as it should be. Mm. And mm. the bar's a better place for having a, a better mix of men and women. But it, it can be it can be demanding for all those reasons that, that we've been discussing. I think about this week, for example, I've had a, a Supreme Court trial which was due to run four days. It finished after three days. I had suddenly uh, a free day mm. and mm. rather than go into chambers, I spent it yeah. uh, with Elisa. Uh, mm. uh, and mm. so that's a, it's a, a swings and roundabouts. So in preparing, using this trial as an example, in preparing for that, worked all day Sunday, worked half of uh, Saturday and worked last week in preparing it that's just the reality mm. of work at the bar but there are opportunities to take some yeah. time off and yeah. when working at the bar for me it's really important to do that mm. uh, to take whatever surprise opportunities there are to have some downtime to take that and to give it back to mm. family yeah. well that's a nice takeaway for the end of this interview so thank you Simon so much for giving me your time and thank you Elisa for being such a good interviewee thank you thank you for joining us on lunching with lawyers if you enjoyed this episode or have questions or comments for our guests head to the show notes for this episode and click on the contact links below If you have suggestions, ideas or questions or would even like to be part of this series, head to the Contact Us page on our website, www.loretacreep.com.